Good morning, everybody, and happy Father's Day to you fathers that are out there. Um, I do want to let you know um, that Jack, uh, this is actually his last Sunday that he'll be out. Um, he's uh, finished up, you know, his, his celebration with his birthday and uh, the time with his wife for their anniversary. And then also, he's actually been taking a class while he's been off in this time to, to work on putting in place um, a new ministry as an outreach of the church. And so he wanted me to let you guys know um, that he was praying for us this morning and that he will be back with us very, very soon. And so you'll start seeing Jack again. Um, I don't remember if next week is here or the next. But anyway, he'll, he'll be back in here when he's usually scheduled to be here. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And you've joined us as we're working through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, now, what we've seen so far, we'll throw a graphic up here so that you can kind of see where we've been, the outline that we're taking. But this book started out with this lament of Habakkuk, and he asked this question, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear, or cry to you violence and you'll not save? And Habakkuk has some real questions here. He, he's a little bit overwhelmed with everything that he sees. He, he sees a world that's running from God. He sees a world where justice is being mocked. He sees a world where it looks like evil is actually going to be victorious. He sees a world where God appears to be losing and trampled. And he cries out, oh Lord, how long will this last? Oh, Lord, how long until I see a move from you? How long will I have to cry out to you before you move in this situation? And it's this question that makes this passage so relevant to us today, all these years later, is because we still look out and we see this type world, don't we? We still look out and we see a world that's overrun with sin. We look out and we see a world where it looks like evil's winning. It looks like those that deny the Lord are victorious. And we cry, how long? Lord, come quickly. And so this really connects us to this book, to this ancient text. But we also see this theme of the book begin to emerge with this first question. It's this theme of waiting. It's this theme of how long will this be? How long do I have to endure this troubled time? How long will I have to continue to see this? Because we have to remember that Habakkuk is living in a time that's not good. He's living in a time where he sees all of these things happen, but he had lived under a good time. He had lived under King Josiah. He saw Judah return to the Lord. He saw the law of the Lord restored to the land. And now he sees the descendants of Judah taking this thing, this this nation, this people that are God's elect and literally condoning sin. And so he sees this big switch in things and he says, how long? And what's interesting is that when God responds to this question, he doesn't actually answer the question that Habakkuk is asking, does he? He doesn't answer how long. He instead answers how this judgment will happen. And when he says how this judgment will happen, he says that it's going to happen at the hands of Babylon, at the hands of the Chaldeans. And this actually brings Habakkuk to a whole new question because we see next that Habakkuk is confused. How is this possible? How are you going to judge your people with this people that's more unrighteous than we are? How are you going to judge us when, by these people that have done things that are so much worse than what we've done? God, how are you doing that? And we see chapter 1 end with this kind of the, these lines of how Babylon's so bad. God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to use these people? And then we get to chapter 2 and we're waiting again. We're waiting on an answer from the Lord. And then starting last week, we begin to see the response of the Lord. And the response of the Lord is first an invitation to live by faith. And this is that invitation to stop looking at what you see around you. It's an invitation to live by what God is doing. It's an invitation to see something bigger than what your eyes are able to comprehend. It's an invitation to live in something larger than this. And so the first, question, the first way that God answers this question of Habakkuk, of how are you going to use these people, see something bigger than what your eyes see. See that I'm working in this. See that I have a plan in this. And that's the first part of the question being answered. And today, we're actually going to see the rest of it. 
the rest of the question is going to be answered. And so we have two stories going on here. We have this story of this overarching thing that we're watching happen. We're seeing a people that have fallen into sin, that have fallen away from the Lord. And Habakkuk is saying, how long? God says, how? He's going to bring judgment to his people. That's this top overarching story. But underneath it, there's another story that we can all relate to. It's the story of a man moving from lament to faith to unconditional trust. That's this understory is that we're seeing Habakkuk grow. We're seeing this process of him being sanctified, being moved from one place to another. And I know that our graphic has it as a straight line and it looks all nice and neat and pretty, but I don't know about you guys, but my journey looks more like a spiral. It's where things come up and I struggle with it. And the Lord shows his faithfulness to me and moves me to a place of trust. But then something else comes up and I seem to fall back into these same patterns. But each and every time I'm further down this road, this place of unconditional trust. And that's the backbone of this. That's this underlying story. And so with all of this in mind, let's dive in to our passage this morning. It says, uh, we're going to start with verse 4 because this is going to set up the two people that we're going to talk about. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And, And so what we're doing is we're beginning to see God say, I see what's happening here. And then God is identifying that there's two different people. There's two different types of people that we're going to see. We're going to see the one that's puffed up, the one that's arrogant, the one that's not upright. But we're also going to see the one that we saw last week, the righteous that lives by faith. There's these two groups of people identified here. And then when we get the first five, we begin to see the characteristics of this, the result of being puffed up, if you will. Look at this, verse 5 says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So verse 5 starts with this kind of description of desire. And it, it paints a picture of the puffed up man. And it's a really interesting picture. It's a picture of complete excess and that excess never being enough. That there's always this desire for more, this need for more. And this describes the Babylonians perfectly. When we go back and look at them as a people, no matter how much land, no matter how much power, no matter how much wealth they acquired, there was always this desire for more. They wanted more. They wanted to gain more. And what the Lord's doing here is he's telling Habakkuk, I see that. You just told me all of these things that they do in chapter 1. You told me all of these reasons that you're more righteous as a people than they are, how terrible they are, and I want you to know, Habakkuk, that I see that. And he begins condemning their actions. He begins calling them out, pronouncing judgment on their lifestyle. But what we have to understand when we read these things, it's not just a condemnation on Babylon. Otherwise, it would all say, woe to Babylon because they live this way. Woe to, woe to Babylon because of this. But, but what we actually see is we see woe to these actions. And because they perform these actions, that's why Babylon will be judged. And so what we have to understand is that we can't remove ourselves from this situation. We can't pull away from this and say this relates only to Babylon because this actually relates to all of humanity. These characteristics, the end of the road, the result of being puffed up, arrogant, self-serving is what we're going to see here. And this is something to remember as we work through the passage. God is agreeing, but what he's saying is he says the arrogant man gathers up things. He gathers up people. He gathers up wealth. He brings all of this stuff into himself. But the problem is, is that the arrogant man, the puffed up man will never, ever be satisfied no matter what he acquires. He always has an insatiable appetite for more. The the Bible says in this passage that the arrogant man can no more be satisfied than Sheol. What does that mean? Well, think about it. No matter how much death occurs, is death ever satisfied? 
They have to always take more. No matter how many billions of people in world history have died, there's room for more. It's never satisfied. There's a thirst for more. Proverbs 30 actually carries this image. Look at this. Proverbs 30, 15 through 16 says this. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. What are they? Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. This is a picture of never being able to be satisfied, that there's a longing for something, there's a need for something, there's a desire for something that can never be fulfilled. How much will a fire burn? The answer is as much as you put in it. When does the world need rain again? As soon as it dries up, it, it needs more. When the Sheol want more death all the time, it's constant. And this is the way the puffed up man lives. This is the way the arrogant man lives. And so the reason why the Bible uses such strong language here is because it wants us to begin to contrast these two people. The two people is the one we saw last week. The righteous shall live by faith. This is the person who is satisfied in God alone, through faith alone, through what God has done alone. This is person A. But person B is the one who's puffed up, the arrogant man who's never at rest, never satisfied. There's nothing that will ever be enough. Now, now all of this imagery is amazing, and you can learn so much from it, and it's powerful. But if we're not careful, we're actually going to miss the most important part of this passage. The most important part of this verse, because if you look closely, there's a blessing and a curse here. Did you guys see that? Did you see this? Look at this. It's interesting. God's laying this groundwork for this constantly wanting more of the arrogant, of the puffed up man. I need more. No matter how much they get, they desire more. They need more to fulfill themselves. They, they need to go get that next thing. And when they have it, they need the next one. They're never satisfied. This is their curse. That they're never satisfied, always wanting more, but there's a blessing. The righteous man, the man who lives by faith, is fully satisfied in God alone. Guys, there's a blessing in that. There's a huge blessing in being satisfied. There, there's a huge blessing in not wanting and not needing more than God who fully satisfies. You guys that have known me for a long time know that I love a good movie quote. I hadn't used them a lot recently because Neil kept saying, ragging me, making fun of me for my movie quotes, but don't go on and bring them back out today. Um, the, the movie quote that I thought of uh, for this passage actually came from Pirates of the Caribbean. Has anybody ever seen that film? Captain Barbosa says something that's really, really interesting. He says this, for too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and I haven't died. That's the picture we see of the puffed up arrogant man. See, in that film, Barbosa's doomed, he's cursed, he's, he's living dead, he's always thirsty, no matter how much wine he consumes, no matter how much drink he consumes, he's always thirsty for more. It never hits the spot because he's cursed, he's dead, he's walking dead. No matter how much he eats, it doesn't satisfy because he's dead on the inside. No matter what he consumes, it doesn't satisfy what he needs, and that's the picture scripture is painting here for us. One who is cursed and never satisfied because their longing is for self. When their ultimate fulfillment can only be found in God. Beloved of Christ, this is something we need to all remember all the time. But it's something that our world needs to hear too. I mean, I mean think about this. Our world, our society screams all the time for more wealth, more power, more control, bigger houses, nicer cars, more influence, better clothes, more affirmation in their sin. They've got to have more and more being a constant consumer. And no matter what they get, it'll never be enough. And we have the message of the gospel to say, do you want to know where your satisfaction is? Do you want to know where your completeness can come from? It can come from the person of Christ. We have this message that the world needs to hear because they scream with the unquenchable thirst of Sheol for death. The reason why they do this, the reason why we as humanity do this is because of our sin, we are so prone to try to find satisfaction in things that we were never meant to be satisfied with. 
We, we look for ways to fulfill our selfishness, to fulfill everything that we need, but we were not designed for this. The only satisfaction of humanity comes in our purpose. And when I say purpose, if you do this at your business, I'm not making fun of you, it's, it's fine. My purpose is not sell six more units than last year. My, my purpose is not make sure that every uh, customer's happy. My purpose is not to to do all of these things. That's not your purpose. That's what you do. That's not who you are. Your purpose can be found summed up perfectly in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You can never be fulfilled outside of your purpose. And this is our purpose, beloved. It's to glorify God. It's to enjoy him forever. He is our satisfaction. He is our fulfillment. He is our blessing. And the arrogant man, the puffed up man will never see that. There is a blessing and satisfaction in the Lord and an emptiness and longing and seeking for fulfillment in anything else. Look at verse 6. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, with scoffing and riddles for him and say. So verse 6 starts with a question, and this is actually going to set up the rest of the chapter. Here the Lord's using a rhetorical question. Uh, that, that He's doing this to make a point that they're not going to continue in their arrogance. They're not going to continue living this way. And Habakkuk's been asking, what about their sin? And the Lord is saying their sin will be judged. It's going to be judged also. Uh, the nations... That, that the people of Babylon, that the Chaldeans overran, is ultimately going to overrun them. God is saying that the nations that Babylon has mocked will one day mock them. He's saying that the nations that Babylon pointed and made fun of will point and make fun of them. That ultimately, that Babylon will fall. It will be condemned. And this is going to happen as a result of one thing and one thing only. Divine judgment. It's not because there's going to be a nation stronger than them. It's not going to be because of just natural disasters or mismanagement of Babylon. It's going to be because God has judged them for their actions. And what are the actions that he's judged them for? This moves us into the section of today known as the five woes. He's going to say these five things that they are judged for. But as we work through these, make sure that we don't see just five woes, though there are. There are also going to be three assurances of the Lord as we work through these. And it's going to be beautiful to watch these come together and see what the Lord has for us in this passage. So the first woe was found in verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So this first woe is a woe to those who covet and swindle and take. It's a woe to those who are going to steal. And what God's saying here is he assures Habakkuk, hey, I see how they've empire, they've grown this empire. I see where they're acquiring their wealth. I see that they're plundering people and taking advantage of people. And what God says is that that debt will have to be repaid, that those nations will ultimately see Babylon be their spoil, that they will fall. See, in this first woe, we, we see that God is letting Habakkuk know that just because he's using Babylon does not mean that he agrees with their actions or affirms them. Because see, God's sovereign. He can use anyone he wants, and he does. And so what he's saying to Habakkuk is, look, just because I'm using them doesn't mean that I agree with them. Just because they're being used doesn't mean that I'm blessing them. Just because they're being used doesn't mean that I affirm them and what they're doing. That, that, that's not the case at all. And this made me think, you know, there's, there's something that I ask one of my classes every single year. I ask the folks in my class, does success mean blessing from God? You see, that, that's a rough question for us because we tend to think so. 
You know, we, we look and have our definition of success, lots of money, a, a thriving business, a, a great house, great cars, good clothes, all of these things. And we look and say, wow, that person's so blessed. God's blessing that person. Be careful, beloved. It's not that those things can't be a blessing from God, but every time you see those things, it doesn't mean they are blessings from God. See, how did you acquire those things? Are you telling me that, that in our nation, I know that I can cheat, lie, and steal to get to the top. And so if I do that, does that mean that God's blessed those things and you should do it too? Hey, God's, God's totally cool with you lying to everybody and cheating people out of their money. Look, look at where it got me. No. So we need to be extraordinarily careful that we don't fall into this trap, that we equate blessings of God with success of man because they're not always the same. There are blessed people of God that live in the most poverty-stricken nations on earth that have to genuinely depend on him intellectually knowing it and all of who they are to even get their next meal. And there are also people blessed of God living on a hill beside the ocean. But there are also those that are doing things improper in both of those places too. So make sure that we don't equate blessing with success, that we don't equate God's approval with what we think success is. We need to be really careful of that because no matter what the outcome, we are called as a people to live differently, no matter where the, where the end of the road takes us. And we see that through scripture, right? Ephesians 5, 5 tells us that no covetous man has an, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. So the one who's constantly going after coveting what someone else has. Psalm 10.3 says, The wicked boasts in his heart's desires and the greedy man curses the Lord. Do we boast in the Lord or do we boast in what we desire and what we have? 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 is that famous, famous passage that tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. These wants, these desires for these things, if we're not careful, can lead us places we never intended to go. And that's what this woe is about, is the person who swindles and takes and desires from other people to build their kingdom. All that's ever going to do is bring emptiness, longing, and wanting. So that's the first woe, woe to those who covet, steal, and take. Look at the next woe, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil game for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So this second uh, woe takes the first one and actually builds on it. It's, it's taking things of people and using it to build your security, to build your uh, protection. This second woe is woe to the person who delights in evil and injustice for personal gain. So these people think that by exploiting others, that they're actually fortifying themselves. They're taken from others to protect their own kingdom. They're taking things improperly from people to make themselves more secure. And the imagery that the Bible uses here is of an eagle that builds its nest so high that it would be impossible for another predator to get to it. That's, that's what the imagery is, talking about the nest, of, of building itself there. But what the Bible says is that the person who builds their nest so high that they feel they can't get uh, any predator come against them, any woe come to them, but takes the things to build the nest from other nations is cursed. Woe be to them. So their national security is all for naught. They'll be unsecured. Though they think they can steal their way to security and prosperity, they can't. This will be their demise. This is a picture of the greedy doing the best to take care of himself because all of their faith is in themselves and what they have. Everything they put their hope on is what they can, they can grab, what they can do, what they can build. And they feel this wealth will protect them from natural disaster. They feel like this wealth will keep them from calamities of the world. They feel like building these walls will protect them from enemies. But here's what they're missing. You can't build a wall high enough to protect you from God's judgment. And that's where they're missing. You can't keep God out and ultimate judgment will come from God. And this is a hard teaching for us. And the reason why this is hard is because if you're honest, and, and it may just be me and Neil, I don't know. Um, but we all have a tendency to do this. Neil and I have both admitted from, to you from standing right here 
that so often, and the Lord has worked in us, convicted us, that he's moving us through this. But for so many years, so often in my life, when anything came against me, the very first thing that I would do is, okay, how much is it going to cost? There may not be a lot in here. How do I fix it with my resources? Oh, there's a big medical bill? Well, okay, so I've got a car that I can sell. I've got, I can walk to work. I need some exercise anyway. We can remortgage the house. How do I fix it? How do I take my financial wherewithal to be able to fix, to be able to stand up against this? The washer and dryer went out. Lowe's has 24 months, same as cash. Let me go see if I can go do that. And we do have responsibility to work in those things. But what this is talking about is, do you find your ultimate hope in what you can produce? what your wisdom can do, what you can come up with, or is your ultimate hope placed in God? Is your first desire, your first want to reach for your wallet or hit your knees? That's what this is talking about. Where is your ultimate hope? And the Bible speaks to this. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Beloved, our security, our hope, our protection, our comfort, our wall, our nest as the redeemed is not found in anything we can fashion with our hands. It's found in the completed work of Christ Jesus on the cross. That is our hope and our only boast is in him. Look at how this continues. Verse 11 says this. Really interesting verse. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's a really, really interesting verse, isn't it? It's talking about inanimate objects talking. But we see this elsewhere in scripture. We see in Genesis 4.10. Genesis 4.10 is the Lord addressing uh, after the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And he says, and the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That doesn't mean that there's a pool of blood literally screaming, using words, using sounds to create the story of what happens. What this is, is that there is evidence of what occurred. There's evidence of the sin. There's evidence of the destruction. There's evidence of turning your back on God. There's evidence of selfishness. And what this passage says in verse 11 is that everything that this person builds, everything the arrogant person builds, all the walls they put up to protect themselves, all the wealth that they acquire, to protect themselves. Those very things are going to be the things that scream out and testify to the sin that's been committed here. That you've desired wealth at all costs. You've swindled people. You've taken advantage of people. And all the things you build to protect yourself with that wealth is going to scream out to the atrocities that you committed to get there. And God's saying, I see that Babylon does this. Don't think I'm blind to it. Don't think that I don't see them. There's this physical evidence that'll cry out that everything you try to amass in this world to bring notoriety to your name, to bring honor to your house, you're going to end up doing the exact opposite. Mark 8, 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's this cry that what we amass is going to show the location of our faith. It's going to show the location of our hope. The very materials used are going to scream out of sin. We see the same picture kind of in James chapter 5 where he says that the wages not paid to the laborers are going to cry out of the sin and taking advantage of these people. It's that same type of language. Things that are collected for selfish ambition will never flourish. Now, some translations actually look at chapter 10 and they translate it sin against your own soul. And when I saw that translation, it made me think of Luke 12, 16 through 21. It's this story about a man who had a great harvest one year. And so what is he going to do with the great harvest? Look at verse 18. It says, and he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. Listen to this. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, 
Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. See, this parable is that same language. I'm going to amass everything that I can. Why? Because my resources keep me from calamity. My resources are my security. Everything that I can hold in my hand is what keeps me from trouble. But ultimate judgment comes from God. And what are you going to do with that stuff when your time is called? There's no real security in it. And this is a huge difference in the man of self and the man of faith. Look at the third woe, verse 12. It says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So woe to him who builds a city on bloodshed and iniquity. This is a woe to those who will still kill and destroy. This woe is the very first one that says that the Lord not only is against selfishness and against theft, but now he also says that it's not just greed is the source of all this, violence also. The Lord is displeased with the violent man. And the crazy thing is, is that this very action is one that our society champions. It's like if we can advance our cause, our agenda, our own kingdom through violence and bloodshed and theft and all of these things, then so be it. And we champion that. Guys, I've watched movies, and I don't know if you have too. If you have, you can feel convicted like me. But I've watched movies where I catch myself cheering for the bad guy. Like so often we have these anti-heroes that are doing disgusting things. And you're like, oh, Matt, yay, go you. And then you realize what you're saying. It's like our whole society has moved to a place of success at all costs, even if it involves bloodshed and violence. And I know that it's easy for us to point at modern times because it is, because we live here. But understand that this is a condition of humanity throughout all of history, all of history. We could fill in the blank with kingdoms that have done this. We could talk about Babylon, sure. We could talk about ancient Rome. We could talk about Greece. We could talk about China. We could talk about America. Fill in the blank. And and this is difficult for us. This is hard. Because ultimately what we find is that all the kingdoms of the earth will be judged except for the kingdom of God. That's the only one that will stand. And in this section, we get to our second assurance. Our first assurance was actually from last week that the just shall live by faith. But look at this. Verse 13 says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? So everything that you you amass is going to be burned up. And nations weary themselves for nothing. They fight to get their own wealth, their own fame, and it's going to be all for naught. But look at this, 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so the second assurance is God's glory will cover the earth. So we see that the righteous shall live by faith and we see that God's glory will cover the earth. The violent man thinks that his power is going to make his name known, that his strength is going to make his name known, that that everyone that he's able to take over is going to make his name known. But what this tells us is that there's going to be only one name remain and that's the name of the Lord. That his glory will one day cover the entire earth and all the laborings of any kingdom, no matter how hard they try, their name will not stand. Babylon will not stand. The nations built by man will not stand. America will not stand. There will be one kingdom in the end, and that is the kingdom of God. And what this does is it justifies the place that we put our faith, doesn't it? See, our hope is not in any earthly kingdom. It's in the eternal one. And so as believers, we put all of our hope in this kingdom and we get people tell us that you believe in a fairy tale. I can't believe this. Live your best life now. It's the only one that you have. And we say, I am. I'm living for something so much bigger than me. I'm totally fulfilled. Let me tell you about it. But but when we see this, we have to understand that what this does is it justifies the place, the location of our faith, and it should spur us in our faith, and we humbly rest in the completed work of God. Look at verse 15, the next woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. 
You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence of earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. Guys, this is such powerful imagery and we could spend a long time on this one. And so I'm going to try to stay a little bit surface here. But what this is an imagery of is woe to you who uses other people for your own pleasure. That you consume image bearers of God for yourself. And that's where this language here is, that that your wine, that your power make them lay naked and exposed where you can take anything you want from them, that you use them as a people, that you literally consume image bearers of God as if they're a commodity and that they exist only to serve you. That's what this woe is about. And what God says is that ultimately those that do this will have that done to them, that they will be consumed by those they attempted to consume, that they will be judged, that they will be put down and it will be by the hand of the Lord that God's judgment will come. And this is such hard things to see because we we look at this and we wonder, how is God going to do this? How is all of this going to work out? But understand that, that what we see when we look at these are actions that are totally rejecting God and ultimately they will get what they desire. Godlessness. And it's so hard to see this. But ultimately, what you do to others for your own glory, who you consume, will ultimately bring you nakedness and shame. Look at verse 18. This is the fifth and final woe. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. See, this fifth and final woe is brought to the idolater, the one who puts the location of their faith in anything other than God. And you see how this kind of sums up everything we've seen so far? It's woe to the one who takes the authentic and replaces it with a copy. Woe to the one who takes the real and replaces it with fake. And I I know that in our society, we don't build things out of stone and wood that we idolize, or do we? See, because anything that takes the rightful place of God on the throne of your life is an idol. And for us, it may not be a carved image of an animal. For us, it may not be stone chiseled down into a statue of an animal. But for us, very, very often, it's still things that we build with our hands. It's pieces of paper with dead presidents printed on them. For us, so often, it's pleasure, it's wealth. Maybe our idols are our politicians that they're somehow going to fix everything. Anything that takes the place of the faith and trust that you are to have in Christ is an idol. And God says, woe to that. And there's an interesting statement here of what value is an idol. Well, the Bible tells us, look at Psalm 115, 1 through 8. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust them. This is harsh, but we just saw that idols are useless. And then it says, those who make them become like them. Those who trust them become like them. Because when we're serving anything other than God, we're not fulfilling our purpose. We're not useful in the way that God has called us to be. We are not being who we're called to be. So woe to those who trust anything other than God. But this ends with verse 20. 
which is our very last assurance. Look at what this says. After saying all this about idols, but the Lord is in his temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. So this last assurance is that the Lord is seated on his throne. Though idols can't speak, idols can't help, idols can't do anything, they're lifeless. Our God is alive and well on his throne in heaven. What he decrees will be. He is sovereign. He is in control. And that's why we put our faith and our hope and our trust in him instead of self. Because anything that we can build will fall. It's going to be consumed. It's going to be burned up. But his kingdom will last forever. The majesty of the living God will cover the earth. So that's verse 20. That's the end of this. Now, the question is, did God ever answer Habakkuk's question? Because Habakkuk asked, why Babylon? Uh, there's an incredible amount of information here. <laughs> but Habakkuk said, why are you going to use more righteous, I'm sorry, why are you going to use less righteous Babylon to judge a more righteous Israel? Well, we have to remember a few things. We have to remember that we have all of Scripture when we study these things. We get to interpret Scripture through Scripture. So before we dig into this too far, think back to chapter 1, what Habakkuk himself already said. I live in a violent, unrighteous place. Does that sound similar to any of these woes? Look at this. Whenever we go back and we look at this historically, we know that the book of Habakkuk takes place sometime Obviously, before Judah is, uh, is taken by Babylon, but sometime after the rule of King Josiah. So we have these descendants of Josiah. This is when it was written, somewhere in this time frame. We can go back and see what's happening in Jeremiah 22 during this time. So we can go back and read Jeremiah 22, and it tells us a lot. If you want to follow along in your copy of Scripture, you can, because I just put a few key verses up here, and this is going to be a lot to read. It's going to be a lot to listen to. But listen to this and see if any of this sounds familiar. This is the judgment. This is the prophecy against the kings of Judah. The people who are more righteous. This is God's judgment on them. Listen to this. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. This is to Judah now. And his upper rooms by injustice. Who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing. And does not give him his wages. Who says I'll build for myself a great house with a spacious upper room. Who cuts out windows for it. Paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think that you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That's talking about Josiah. Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well, again, talking about Josiah. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord, but you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Look at verse 24. Were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you're afraid, even into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return." What do we see? How is God answering the question? How come these less righteous people will judge more righteous people? God says you're not more righteous people. You're guilty of the same thing. You deserve the same condemnation. You deserve these things. You've done the same stuff. You speak against them. You already said that you have problems with what Judah's doing. But now all you can do is look at the sin that's happening over there. Understand what's happening inside again. Look at yourself. I'm God. I'm sovereign. I'm good. But I'm just... My justice will be served. And so God is saying that the puffed up person is one who lives for themselves. Grab a mirror, Judah. You're puffed up. You're arrogant. You're self-serving. 
And we know historically what happened to both these groups of people. Judah falls to Babylon, right? What happens to Babylon? It's a really interesting story found in Daniel chapter 5. You guys may remember this. The king, King Belshazzar at this time, throws a great party. A thousand people come drinking, thousands more uh, observing what's going on. They're getting completely drunk. And Belshazzar says, hey guys, I have a great idea. You should go get the vessels from the temple that were designed to worship Yahweh. Bring them in here and let's get drunk off that. And they're taking these vessels that were designed to worship God and they were using them for something different than they were intended to be used for. Remember that whole fulfillment satisfaction thing right there? And so what he does is he fills these and they drink and they're praising the gods of stone and bronze and silver and gold and wood and all of these idols they're worshiping of everything that they've amassed. And then all of a sudden something crazy happens. He looks over and says, am I that drunk or do you see what I see? A hand appears and begins writing on the plaster wall. Scripture says that King Belshazzar's knees begin to shake. He's frightened and he says, I need to know what this says. Bring me someone who can interpret this. And whoever interprets this will be clothed in purple, given rings. They'll be given a place in the kingdom. And nobody could figure out what it said. But then Daniel is remembered. Bring in Daniel. Daniel says, yeah, I'll interpret it for you. But you can keep your stuff. I don't want your stuff. What it says on the wall is God is numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel's given the stuff that the king said he would, even though he didn't want it. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was killed. There was judgment brought in this. They fell, they were conquered. Judah fell, Babylon fell. And you may say, well, good, I'm, in great, I'm great here because I haven't done any of those things that you just listed out. I, I, I haven't used violence for personal gain. I don't swindle people. I don't steal from people. I don't do all of these things. And so I'm totally fine. But if you say that, then you're looking at the moral of the story being you should be religious and do good things. And that's not the moral of the story. That's not the story at all. And we know that because when we get to the New Testament, Matthew 23, Jesus does something really interesting. He pronounces seven woes to the Pharisees. I mean, who does more religious good than the Pharisees, right? And what does he call them? He calls them blind. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but totally dead on the inside. He told them that they're meticulous in tithing their spices, but they neglect the greater things of, of justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, they were puffed up too. They built their kingdom on self. It was just religiosity and legalism. See, this story is about where do you build your kingdom? Is it on what Christ has done or what you can do? That's the moral of the story. It's not you not doing all of these things. Though we're not going to, we shouldn't. It's about where's your ultimate hope and trust? Is it in what you can accomplish? Is your eternity based on the fact that you're sitting in a chair at Mars Hill this Sunday morning? If so, it's misplaced because that's what you've done. You got in the car and came here. Is it based on the fact that, that you pray, that you read your Bible? Is it, is it based on what you can accomplish? Is your security based in those things or is it based in the completed work of Christ Jesus on the cross? That's the question. Because you see, God has promised us that one day the great Babylon will be judged. Every person who's lived in this mentality will be judged. Everyone who's lived for self will be judged, and they're going to be found wanting. We have to remember that as humanity, we all already stand condemned. We love John 3.16, and it's an amazing verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But so often we forget 17 and 18, because all that it does is it supports that statement. John 3.17 and 18 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We know that the wages of sin is death. Are you trying to save yourself out of that? 
Are you trying to pull yourself out of that? Have you trusted him? There's no other means of salvation. You can't build walls and defenses against the judgment of God. You can't build your life enough where your wealth is going to protect you in eternity. We saw that in the parable that Jesus told, that no matter how much he amassed, that there would be a day that he's going to be called on to account for everything he's done. Where is your hope in that moment? The Bible says today can be the day of your salvation. Confess Jesus with your lips, believe in your heart, and you will be saved and you can be removed from the spinning wheel of desiring more and never satisfied to laying in the hands of an almighty righteous God that fulfills all of who you are, all of who you need, and holds your security and eternity there. And we can rest in that. We're no longer in a rat race at that point. We rest, we Sabbath in that. So it's a profound question. One, where's your faith? And two, those of you redeemed, does your life reflect that you rest in God or things of this world? Remember, 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 this is so hard. I promise I'm preaching to myself. Remember that when we find hope and satisfaction in anything else, we're always going to be found wanting. Rest in the completed work of Christ. Rest in what we were made for. And beloved, we were made for one thing, for one purpose. And that was to glorify God. Enjoy him forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the conviction and encouragement that's in your word. I thank you that you tell us that you have completed this all, that your work was enough, that the completed work of salvation was done by you in your son. Lord, I pray that you help us rest in that. Lord, that you help us not build, but rest. Lord, help us not strive after things that are never going to satisfy, but strive to enjoy you forever. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that has somehow put their faith and their protection in things of this world, that today, through the conviction of your Holy Spirit in response to the grace that you've afforded us in your Son, that they respond in faith. And they lay down their life, they bend their knee, and they bow their head to your Lordship. Lord, let today be the day of their salvation. Lord, for those of us that are redeemed, we do not live this out perfectly. So I'm so thankful for Jesus who did. He was all about your business, all about the Father's business, and lived perfectly according to that. So Lord, I pray that when we have times that our eyes are taken off of the things that mattered and placed on the temporary things, that by the power of your Spirit, you draw us back to you, and we find our satisfaction and our comfort in that. It's so easy to look at the world around us and feel troubled. To look at things and wonder if the dollar is going to collapse one day, if the markets are going to collapse, if our government is going to actually be able to work this out or if we're going to destroy each other from the inside. But Lord, no matter what if those things happen, if our rest is in you, we just say praise be to God. Your will be done. Lord, I know that we are like Habakkuk. We pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we want to see your move. We want to rest in that. But Lord, until then, grow us to a place of unconditional trust in your plan and who you are. Let us see through faith and not only our eyes. We pray this in the name of your son, Christ. Amen.